You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Jesus' parting words to his disciples were a commission, a sending out, kind of a telling them what he wanted them to do. And this is what he told them that he wanted them to do. He said, I want you to go out into all the world, and I want you to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to do all that I've taught you. And so here in the book of Acts, what we're seeing is how the first generation of Christians, even the people who received that message personally, how they responded to that and how they lived that out. And we're currently in a section of the book, just to give you some big picture stuff here, we're currently in the section of the book where we're reading about the very first missionaries, the people who left house and home to go to foreign lands, to people they had never met before, at great expense, oftentimes great danger to themselves, to take the good news of Jesus, what he did, who he was, uh, to take the good news of salvation through him to these people and to start churches where these people could grow as disciples of Jesus. And a lot of what we've seen so far as we've been traveling through this book, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, is that we've been seeing a lot how these missionaries shared the gospel with people who didn't yet believe. But if you think about it, if you think that that is the only thing that they cared about doing, the only thing that they were concerned with doing, well, then you would be mistaken. In our text today, we see that these early Christians weren't only concerned with making converts to Christianity, they were very much concerned about making disciples. After all, that was the mission that Jesus gave them, go and make disciples. More than just making converts, he wanted them to make disciples and to teach them all that he had taught them. So what this means is that God has a bigger vision for your life than that you would just simply tick the box and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Sure, I'm a Christian. What God wants for you is something more than that. He wants you to be a disciple, a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. And if you do that, it will affect every area of your life. So the title of today's message is Doctrine and Discipleship. And and here's what we're going to see. Three things. We're going to talk about why doctrine matters what it means to be a disciple, and how to make disciples. And we're gonna, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to study through the text, and then we're going to come back to those questions at the very end. But keep these things in mind as we're traveling through this, because you're going to see them pop up over and over. Why doctrine matters, what it means to be a disciple, and how to make disciples. So we pick up the story, the narrative here, in Acts chapter 18, in verse 23, and here's what we read. After spending some time there, that's in the city of Antioch, He, that's Paul, departed and went from one place to the next through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, it's interesting to see the end of Paul's second missionary journey, which is what we had been studying up until now, and the beginning of his third missionary journey. And the reason it's interesting to note is because if you're not paying attention, you'd totally miss it. And and here's why, because it happens in between verse 22 and verse 23. Verse 22 ends the second missionary journey, and verse 23 begins the third missionary journey. In verse 22, we read how after years of ministry in various cities in what is now Turkey and Greece, Paul returned home to his home church in Antioch. Now, this is the church that originally sent him out as a missionary. This is the place that he always returned to between his trips. And it says in verse 23 that Paul spent some time there in Antioch. 
can imagine what he did, you know, he probably meeting with people, probably giving a report to the church of all that had been going on, sharing stories of what God was doing in these different places where he had been. You know, this was also probably a time of rest for Paul. For years, he's been moving around. We've been reading how sometimes he's been chased out of towns, facing opposition. Uh, he's always living in places that are not his home. This time in Antioch would have been a time of resting, a time of reflecting, a time of celebrating with the church there over all that God had done and was doing. And I'm sure that there was a lot of reminiscing going on because if you remember, do you remember back in Acts chapter 13 where we read about how they were in the church in Antioch and they were praying and then God said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the mission I've got for them? You know, I'm sure there was some reminiscing, you know, some, some thinking back and saying, man, remember, remember back then, remember that time when we were having that prayer meeting and the Holy Spirit told us to lay hands on you and Barnabas and send you guys out? Man, who would have thought? Who would have thought then that all of this would have happened as a result of that? Who would have thought that that one simple step of obedience and saying yes to God's leading would have led to all these great things? So many churches planted, so many people embracing the gospel all over the world. None of us then would have imagined or envisioned all that has happened since you first set out on that first trip with Barnabas. Now, how many of you have had those kinds of moments of reflection, those moments of clarity where you look back and you're amazed at how far God has brought you and all that God has done? You see, this is what happens when you obey God's leading in your life one step at a time. Sometimes those seem like seemingly small decisions, but when you say yes to God, it might not seem like a big thing at the time, but it's the accumulation of those things that makes a life, that makes a legacy. It's the accumulation of saying yes to God and taking those steps of obedience that after a while you look back and you're amazed at how far you've come and all that God has done. So I want to encourage you this morning to take those steps to say yes to God in your life. Say yes to the leading of the Holy Spirit starting today so that one day you're going to have a legacy like Paul did, where you can look back and, and like Paul in the church in Antioch at all that God has done because of simple steps of obedience and saying yes to God. But after this time in Antioch, we see that Paul sets out immediately again. It says that he returned to the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. Now, these were the regions where, if you remember, where Paul founded churches on his first missionary journey. And so he did that, and they strengthened all the disciples. That's what he did as he visited these churches. See, Paul's passion was not only helping people become Christians. Paul's passion was to help them become disciples, committed followers of Jesus, for whom every area of their lives was shaped by the gospel. Paul's passion was to help people take the next steps in their relationship with God. That was his passion. What's the next step for you? For some, it was the step from unbelief to belief. For others, it was the step from belief to discipleship. For some, it was discipleship to greater discipleship. See, that's why Paul returned over and over to the churches he started. That's why he wrote letters to those churches to teach them and correct them and encourage them as disciples of Jesus. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul says this. He says, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, he's encouraging him to take the next step to go from belief to discipleship. It's worth considering. I would just ask you this question. Where do you stand on that continuum? What's the next step for you to take in your relationship with God? As Paul's in Galatia and Phrygia, now the scene is going to shift to the city of Ephesus. 
Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world, and Paul had always wanted to. He had even tried to go there to start a church before, but the timing had never been right. Something always just seemed wrong about the timing, and it had never happened. But in our study last week, we saw at the very end of Paul's second missionary journey, as he's heading back to Antioch, he passes through Ephesus, and while he's there, he brings his friends, Aquila and Priscilla, who he met in Corinth. They helped him start the church in Corinth. He brings them there to Ephesus, and he tells them, I want you guys to stay here in Ephesus. I'm going to go visit these churches, Antioch, Galatia. I want you guys to stay here and see what God might do. Maybe you guys prepare the ground because I'm going to return and then we're going to start a church together. So that's what they're doing there. As Paul's visiting these other churches, Aquila and Priscilla, his friends, are on the ground there in Ephesus. And let's see what they find starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God. So Aquila and Priscilla, they come across this guy in Ephesus who's preaching about Jesus. Now they, they must have thought, you know, wow, like who would have... Who would have thought, right? This is awesome. We don't know this guy. Who is this guy? We never heard about him in our Christian circles or our networks. We had no idea that there was someone here in Ephesus who was preaching Jesus. And they say, wow, this is amazing. And so what uh, this Apollos taught about Jesus, it says here that it was accurate. And it also says that he was passionate about it. Verse 24, one translation puts it this way. It says that he was mighty in the scriptures. Verse 25, we read that he was fervent in the spirit. That word fervent, it literally means boiling over. We would say in our, our modern vernacular, we would say that this guy was on fire. The only thing was this, that as Aquila and Priscilla are listening to him speak about Jesus, they realize that something is missing, something's not right. It says in verse 25 that Apollos, he only knew the baptism of John. What that means is that he didn't know about the baptism in Jesus' name, which was instituted after Jesus' death and resurrection. So the baptism into Jesus is an outward symbol of death and resurrection. That, that's the symbolism of going under the water. It's a symbol of death and coming out, being born again to new life. It's your way of saying, I have been born again. I died to the person that I was apart from Christ. I've been born to a new life through him, which is possible because he died and rose again for me. Apollos didn't know about this baptism into Jesus, which means that although he knew about Jesus, he didn't know the whole story. He hadn't heard about Jesus' death and resurrection. See, John the Baptist had called people to repent and turn their hearts to God in order to prepare themselves to receive the coming of the Messiah. And then when Jesus came, John announced that Jesus was the Messiah. And so probably this is what Apollos knew of Jesus, and this is what he preached in Ephesus. He, he, he preached eloquently and passionately from the scriptures that people should embrace Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah. And so Aquila and Priscilla, they hear this fiery young man from Alexandria preaching about Jesus, and they say, wow, this is incredible. This guy loves the Lord. He's passionate about what he's saying. What he's saying is accurate. But it seems like he doesn't know the whole story. We've got to get together with this guy. So they get together with Apollos. They pull him aside privately. And they explain to him the way of God more accurately. 
I, you can just imagine the conversation, you know. You know, Apollos, they would have said, Apollos, you know, we're so glad to hear somebody in the town teaching people about Jesus. We're followers of Jesus too. That's why we've moved here to this town. We've come here for the same reason. But, uh, but you know, Apollos, we were listening to you talk, and there were some things that we noticed that we wanted to talk to you about. Like, for example, do you know about Jesus' death on the cross? And you can imagine for somebody who didn't know that, all, they, all he knows is that Jesus is the Messiah, he would have said, What? Jesus died on a cross? Are you kidding me? How can that be? Wasn't he the Messiah? How is this possible? This is terrible news. And Priscilla and Aquila would have explained to Apollos, well, see, the Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, they talk about how the Messiah will suffer, how he will suffer for the sins of the people. And Jesus did that. That's what his death on the cross was about. He fulfilled those prophecies. He's the Savior of all the world because he became the perfect sacrifice. He took upon himself, he bore in himself the sins of the whole world on the cross. And he said, that's why, you remember John the Baptist, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. And Aquila and Priscilla must have told him, but wait, there's, there's more. You see, after Jesus died on the cross, they buried him in this tomb. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. You imagine, Apollos must have jumped out of his chair. What? He rose from the dead? Are you kidding me? Right? He, as they explain this to him, how, how Jesus defeated death and what that means for us is that in him we too can have victory over death in the grave. That's the hope of the gospel. And they would have told him that after Jesus rose from the dead, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us and, and to empower us to carry out his mission. He sent us to take this good news into all the world and make disciples of every nation and every city of the world. You know, Apollos must have been blown away to hear this news. And, and we know that he received it gladly because this is what we read in the following verses in verse 27. And when he visited, or when he wished, that's Apollos, to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So here's Apollos, you know, now having the whole picture, really understanding the gospel, and he desires to go to Achaia, which, by the way, is the region where Corinth is located. And we can imagine that as they talked, you know, Apollos and, and Priscilla and Aquila, probably they told him that they had just come from Corinth and that there was this church there, you know, and, and that he should check it out. They helped Paul start this church. You can imagine Apollos having never been part of a Christian community. He must have said, wow, a whole community of people who are following Jesus. That sounds amazing. I would love to be part of something like that. And so Aquila and Priscilla, they send him to Corinth with an endorsement, to encouraging the believers there to receive him into fellowship with open arms. And there in Corinth, we see that Apollos, we read later on that he was active in preaching the gospel to the Jewish community. We know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it seems that Apollos became a leader in the church in Corinth eventually, and that it seems that he even became the pastor of the church. We don't know that for sure, but that's sure what it seems, because Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says that I planted the seeds and then Apollos watered those seeds. So it would seem that Apollos became the, church, the pastor of the church in Corinth. But I love this story. I love that Aquila and Priscilla were willing to come alongside this young guy, Apollos. They were willing to spend some time with him and help him grow in his knowledge of Jesus and in his understanding of the gospel. And I would wonder, maybe there are some of you here, some of you older believers, or maybe not old in age, but you've been walking with the Lord for some time. Maybe some of you married couples like Aquila and Priscilla. You've been 
doing this for a while, you know a lot of stuff. Maybe there's a young person, maybe there's a younger couple that you need to, to bring, bring alongside you. You need to invite them over for dinner. You need to take them out for coffee. You need to spend some time with them, invest in them, mentor them, pour out into them, share with them your experience and wisdom and help them grow. I love that Aquila and Priscilla did that with Apollos. And secondly, I love that Apollos was so teachable. I mean, isn't this where we get messed up sometimes, where we're not willing to receive instruction or correction? It seems that Apollos was a, a big personality, but yet he was willing to be teachable. I think that's interesting. He was willing to receive what Aquila and Priscilla had to share with him. So I would ask you this question. Ask yourself, are you a teachable person? And the third thing I want to say here that I love about this story, I love that Apollos was zealous. You see, Apollos' problem was he lacked knowledge. But what he did know, he, he taught accurately and he taught passionately. You see, I think it's a tragedy that there are a lot of people who have knowledge, but what they lack is zeal. They, they, have, they, they have all the knowledge, but they lack the zeal to do anything with that knowledge. And I would encourage you to be like Apollos. What you do know, know it well and live it out. Now let's continue on from verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we didn't. we've never even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. And he says, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So Paul finally arrives in Ephesus, and when he gets there, he meets this group of 12 disciples, and he starts talking to them. You can imagine, they say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, we know about Jesus, we believe in Jesus, we, we love Jesus. And, and then they're talking, and, and something must have you know, triggered something in Paul as he talked to them that caused him to ask them a question. Okay, well, I see that you know about Jesus, but, but here's the thing. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you, were, when you believed? And they said, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? See, like Apollos, they were only familiar with the ministry of John the Baptist. It's quite possible that these 12 had actually become believers in Jesus through the ministry of Apollos. We see probably that's why the stories are so close together. They had heard of Jesus. They knew he was the Messiah, but that was it. And so they were believers in Jesus in the sense that they knew he was the Messiah, but they didn't know about the cross. They didn't know about the resurrection. They didn't know about Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul filled them in, and they believed, and they were baptized, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we read in verse 8, Then he, Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is something we saw in the last chapter. That Paul, he follows this pattern, this method. When he comes into a new town, he, he goes and he speaks in the synagogue and he does that and he reasons and he tells them about Jesus until he gets to the point where people start blaspheming the name of Jesus. And at that point, Paul says, all right, I'm, I'm gonna go somewhere else now. 
And so Paul goes and it says that he takes the believers with him and he went to the hall of Tyrannus. Some of your um, translations will say the school of Tyrannus because that's what this was. It was a lecture hall. It was a school. Um, Probably Paul borrowed this room. It was maybe given to him. Maybe he rented it. Maybe he paid rent there. But it was there in Ephesus. It was a school room. It was a classroom setting. And every day... He would meet there with believers and unbelievers and whoever would show up and he would teach about Jesus from the scriptures for anyone who wanted to come, believer or unbeliever. Every day, Paul did this for two years until all the province of Asia, which is the surrounding region, that's the province where Ephesus is located, until the whole region of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. There's one ancient writing, uh, extra biblical writing, which says that Paul taught in this classroom setting every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that was usually, by the way, that was, you know, they had a siesta time in their culture there. And so this is when everybody would be taking a break from work. And Paul would hold meetings, you know, when you're having your break time from work, Paul would hold meetings in this hall, this school building, and he would teach those who gathered there about Jesus. It would seem that his teaching there, it was part evangelistic, part informative for believers, instructive for believers. Because it says that not only did the whole city of Ephesus, but the whole province of Asia, they heard the word of the Lord as a result of Paul's teaching there every day for two years in the hall of Tyrannus. And we know that many churches were started in the cities of the province of Asia by people other than Paul because later on we read about churches existing in other cities in this province which we never read about Paul himself visiting. Cities like Smyrna, Laodicea, Colossae. You know, cities of the, the region of Ephesus, which Paul never went to personally. It would seem that what happened is that during his time there in Ephesus, Paul dedicated a lot of his time to raising up other people, equipping other people to do the work of the ministry. And then he began sending them out into the surrounding region to preach the gospel, to start churches. (coughs) He taught daily in the hall of Tyrannus. His message would speak both to people who were already believers and people who didn't yet know the gospel. He wanted to help people make their next step in their walk with God. People who weren't believers, he wanted to help them become believers. People who were believers, he wanted to help them become disciples. People who were disciples, he wanted to help them onto greater discipleship, equipping them to live lives as disciples of Jesus, equipping them to serve Jesus in places like that. Paul's time here in Ephesus, in the Hall of Tyrannus, by the way, it's one of the things that that I've always thought about. It's always inspired me to, to say, you know, We need more teaching. Look at what happens when there's good, regular teaching in people's lives. People become equipped. People are sent out. The word of God spreads. Lives are changed. It's one of the things that inspired me here at Whitefields to say, let's start something which we call the School of Ministry and Discipleship. That's a series of classes that we teach, some on Sunday mornings, some in classroom settings uh, in different places around town. And I would encourage you, uh, we're going to be starting those classes up soon, Keep an eye out for that and sign up for those classes. It's a great way to grow as a disciple of Jesus. So there are three things I said that we see in this section. Now here's where we're going to look at them. First of all, we see why doctrine matters. Secondly, we see what it means to be a disciple. And thirdly, we see how to make disciples. So let's talk about why doctrine matters. Here's what we've seen in this section. We've got Aquila and Priscilla, and they come alongside Apollos to explain to him the way of God more accurately. That means that doctrine mattered to them. Paul, he instructs these 12 disciples in Ephesus more fully concerning the doctrines of the faith. Paul then spends two years teaching daily in the school of Tyrannus, 
Christian doctrine for five hours a day. Many of Paul's letters to the churches, they're concerned first with teaching doctrine and refuting bad doctrine and then talking about how that works out practically in your life. See, Paul would later write to Titus, a young pastor, and he would tell, them, tell him, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. He would write to Timothy, another pastor, later on and say, keep a close watch on yourself and on your doctrine. Clearly, good doctrine is important. It was important to the Apostle Paul. It should be important to us. And the role of the church is not just to inspire people and give motivational talks. The role of the church is to instruct people and to teach and guard sound doctrine. See, Christian doctrine is a body of content which we believe is the true story of the world. It's the true story of you. It's the true story of the universe. It's the true story of God and all things seen and unseen. Christian doctrine is what we believe is the true story of all these things. And that's immensely important when it comes to knowing or understanding just about anything, but especially God and especially ourselves. For example, if you want to know who I am, you can't just believe anything you want about me. I mean, you can but, but if you really want to know me, it won't be helpful. I mean, imagine that uh, there was someone among you today, and you, and you come up to me and you say, Nick, you know, I like you. And, you know, whenever I think about you, I like to think of you as an Italian plumber who lives in Boulder. Well, I would say three things. First of all, I'd say, well, um, those are all really good things, right? Like, uh, you know, Italians are great people. Plumbing is a wonderful, very useful profession, and Boulder is a great city. Secondly, I would say this, it's a free country and there's free speech and you're free to believe whatever you want. You know, you're free to believe about me whatever you want to believe. No one's going to arrest you. You're not going to get fined for it. But the third thing I would say is, those things are all true, but, but what you believe about me is just simply not true. I'm just not that. I'm not an Italian plumber who lives in Boulder. See, if you want to know me, if you want to get to know anybody, you need to know the truth about them. And so the question is, do you want to know God? See, that's the, that's the issue, isn't it? Then you can't just believe whatever you want about him. You can't just formulate your own image of him out of your imagination. You see, do you want to know yourself? Modern secular thinking would say that you're nothing more than a physical body, no soul, and that your personality, who you are, is just the product of evolutionary biology and culture. But the Bible would say, no, it's much more complex than that. You're a body and a soul. You're not just the product of, of what happened to you. You were created by God. You were created in the image of God. You see, these viewpoints are different, and they can't both be right. And so if you want to know who you are and you want to know God, then knowing the truth is incredibly important. Christian doctrine is the Bible's account of who you are, the Bible's account of who God is, the Bible's account of how God works and what God does. And an important thing about doctrine is this. We don't just study doctrine for the sake of studying doctrine. You see, we don't just study these things so that we can know them and that's it. It's not the end in itself. We don't study doctrine just so that we can feel good about ourselves, that now we know the truth and now we're righter than other people who aren't as right as us. You know, now we know the truth and isn't it great that I know this stuff? No, see, good doctrine isn't an end in itself. Good doctrine is a means to an end, means to many ends. It's the true story, not just of who you are and who God is. It's the true story of what happened historically so that you can be redeemed and healed and cleansed and made right with God and, and have eternal life. It's a means to that end. Furthermore, good doctrine is food. 
It's food for your heart. It's food for your soul. It's food for your character. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says this. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know what that means? He's saying this. He's saying, don't just know the truth. Don't just memorize the truth. Don't just learn the doctrines, but let those truths, those doctrines, let them dwell within you richly. In other words, if you're lacking courage, if you're lacking anything in your life that's a sign of unhealth, right? If you're lacking courage, if you're lacking joy, if you're lacking love, you can't just muster it up in yourself. You can't just close your eyes and and squeeze hard and make it happen, right? I'm going to make myself happy and just make it happen. It won't work. But see, if you're a Christian, you have this incredible resource. If you lack any of those things, courage, love, joy, etc., it's not because, well, I'll put it this way. If you're lacking any of those things, it's because you're not letting the truth, you're not knowing the truth in the moment. You're not letting the truth, the true story, dwell within you richly. You see, if you're a Christian and you're lacking joy, it's because you're not thinking about the truth. If you were, you'd have every resource, every reason to have joy in the midst of every circumstance. Or maybe you do know the truth, but you're forgetting it in the moment. You're forgetting to consider it in that moment. But because you see you know the true story of the world, because you've got the foundation of good and true doctrine, you've got the resources for everything you need, which you can draw upon, like food for your heart, like food for your soul, food for your character. That's what good doctrine is. That's why good doctrine matters. Doctrine matters because what you believe directly affects what you do. You see, from your attitudes towards work and money to how you deal with conflict with other people to how you treat your spouse and raise your kids. See, this is why Paul's letters always begin. The first half is always doctrine. Here's what's true. Here's who God is. Here's what Jesus did. And then the second half of the letter is because those things are true. Here's how it transforms the way we think. Here's how it transforms the way that we live. There's a great medieval thinker. His name was Bonaventure. And he was once asked the question, why don't people love God more? Why don't people love God more? His answer, because they don't know God better. You see, if you were to know God more, you would love God more. It causes you to love him more. That knowledge, when it touches your heart, that doctrine, when it reaches your heart, it causes you to love God more, to trust God more. You see, good doctrine is fuel for worship. A true vision of God's greatness, God's majesty, God's love, God's faithfulness. When you get a vision of that, it's fuel in the tank that drives you to worship him. So doctrine matters. Doctrine is the true story. It's food for your soul. It's fuel for worship. Next, what does it mean to be a disciple? So doctrine matters, but what does it mean to be a disciple? So to be a disciple means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a disciple, though, is more than just to be someone who believes Christian doctrine. You see, just believing the doctrines of Christianity, that doesn't make you a disciple. Discipleship is what Jesus called people to, though. And there are three important characteristics of what it means to be a disciple. First of all, to be a disciple is to have a new priority. In the Gospels, we we read about several people who came to Jesus during his life and they told him, Jesus, we want to be your disciples. We will follow you anywhere you go. And then Jesus proceeded to challenge them about their priorities. One man, he comes to Jesus, we read, and he says, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go, but first, I'd like to go home and bury my father. Now, when you read that story, a lot of people, you know, upon your first reading, you say, oh, this poor guy, you know, his dad just died, he's probably... You know, he's 
probably in the funeral home right now. You know, the funeral's going to happen soon. He wants to attend his dad's funeral. Of course he should be allowed to go visit his dad's funeral. But see, Bible scholars, all of them, linguists who read this, they say, no, see, that's not what's being said here. It's not that he's going to miss the funeral unless he goes and then he'll be right back. No, it's this, right? The implication is that this guy is saying, Jesus, I'll follow you someday, you know, when I, when I don't have these other things in my life going on. When, when my dad isn't around anymore, then I'll, then I'll be ready to follow you. His dad, probably at home, he's probably uh, lifting weights and playing flag football. I mean, the guy's probably just fine, you know? But most, see, most sons in this day would work in the family business. And probably what he's saying is, you know, Jesus, when I'm no longer bound by the responsibilities that I'm currently bound by, well, then, then I'll come and follow you. Then I'll make following you my top priority. Jesus says, your priorities are wrong. To be my disciple, you've got to have a new set of priorities. Me and my mission has to come first for you. Another man said, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. And Jesus said, well, okay, but know this. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. In other words, here's what he's saying. If your priority is comfort, then you need a new set of priorities if you want to be my disciple. A rich young man comes to him and Jesus asks him whether wealth and power are his priorities or if it's really following him. See, what Jesus is telling all these people is that to be his disciple means that he must come first in their lives. He must be for you both Savior and Lord. You can't separate the two. If you want him to be your Savior, he's got to be your Lord. For example, right, my, my name is Nick Katie. I'm Nick, I'm Katie. If I were to show up at your house and you said, come on in, Nick, but stay out, Katie, well, that would be a problem because I can't separate those two parts of who I am. It's not like the top half of me is Nick and the bottom half of me is Katie and you can just separate the two. So the thing is this, is this if you won't have Katie, then you can't have Nick. And with Jesus, Jesus came, you know, if you say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive my sins, answer my prayers, do this and that for me, but don't be the absolute master of my life. You can't do that. You see, I want, you can't say, I want Jesus my Savior, but I don't want Jesus my Lord. If you say that, you can't have him at all because he is all Savior and he's all Lord. He's Savior because he is the Lord and he's Lord because he is the Savior. So to be a disciple is to have a new priority and to put him first. Second, to be a disciple is a matter of identity. It's to identify with him, to derive your identity from who you are in relation to him. Thirdly, to be a disciple is a journey. To be a disciple, as we've said, is to actively follow Jesus. And what that implies is a journey, following, going somewhere. And in every journey, you leave where you're at to go somewhere else that you've never been before. See, that's what Jesus is saying. Follow me on this journey. I'm going to take you from where you're at right now, and I'm going to take you somewhere else, somewhere where you're not at right now, somewhere where maybe you've never been before. And in every journey, there's a decisive point where you take the first step and you leave. You take that first step, you depart, you set off on that journey. And so let me ask you this question. Have you taken that first step have you set off on this journey of not just believing in Jesus, not just believing Christian doctrine, but following Jesus and letting him lead you from where you're at right now to where he wants to take you? To go on this journey means that he must lead you and you must let him determine the course. And after you've begun the journey, the fact remains that it is a journey, that it's an ongoing process, something that you don't just come to the end of quickly 
or even until this life is over. And the last thing, how to make disciples. You know, Jesus, he didn't say, if you follow me, then I will go to the cross for you. No, Jesus says, I went to the cross for you, therefore, follow me. You see, you become a disciple because you understand what he has done to save you, and that moves you to want to follow him. There are two things in this section that we see are necessary for growing as disciples. First of all, good doctrine. We've talked about that. We see that uh, in Paul's work and in his life. That was how he made disciples. But the second one that we see is a believing community. Albert Einstein once said this. He said, setting an example is not the main way of influencing other people. It is the only way. See, sometimes something we see modeled here both by Paul and by Aquila and Priscilla, these people who became disciples and who grew as disciples, what we see is a believing community, being with other people, seeing their faith lived out, sharing those things. This is something that Jesus modeled himself. He took 12 men and he allowed those men into his life. They saw everything he did. They ate together, they traveled together, and they learned what it means to follow God and to pray and all these things. They learned it by being there around him. I, I think we live in a culture here in Colorado, in the United States, uh, we live in a culture that is obsessed with privacy. Do you realize that? Do you, do you feel that? We live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with privacy. And so this is a hard one for many people because of this fact that we're so obsessed with privacy. But it is an absolute necessity if you are going to grow, if you're going to help other people grow as disciples of Jesus, you kind of got to get over that and you've got to put yourself in people's lives, welcome people into your life. So I would challenge you to step out of your comfort zone in this area. Get involved in community rich Christian community with other believers. You can do it by joining. We have community groups here at this church. You can do it by just getting together on your own with other believers. But let me tell you this, you need it more than you realize. I need it more than I realize. So in closing, let me just say this. Let me ask you this. What is the next step that you need to take in your relationship with God? See, we see this being Paul's passion in life, helping people make the next step in their walk with God. So let me ask you, what is it for you? Have you put your faith in the gospel? Have you set out on that journey? If not, do so today. What are you waiting for? Jesus died so that you can have life. Receive that gift of new life today. Others of you, is it time, I would ask you, is it time to make that next step from belief to discipleship? Maybe there's a particular area of your life that God has been speaking to you about. It's time to say yes. Whatever it is for you, I want to encourage you today. Take that next step in your relationship with God. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you didn't say, if you follow me, then I will go to the cross for you. But Lord, you went to the cross for us. And therefore, Lord, it's our desire to follow you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, Lord, that in each of our lives, you know where we're at and you know what the next step is that we need to take in our walk with you. Lord, would you help us today to make that next step? Lord, thank you that you took every step to Calvary for us. You bore our sins in your body on the cross. We are forever thankful for that. Lord, thank you for this. And we bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.